Hi, I'm Dr. Whitney Hauser with Dry Eye Coach Podcast, and we welcome today Dr. Tal Ravie, founder and medical director of the Eye Center of New York. Welcome, doctor. Thanks for having me. I'm a fan of your podcast. Oh, very good. Very good. Thanks so much. We really enjoyed doing them, and we rely on experts like yourself to provide us some content and clarity on a lot of interesting issues in dry eye disease. Today, we're going to be talking about dry eye treatments pre- and post-cataract surgery, and this, I know, is impactful for our patients and for our practices, both in optometry and ophthalmology. So we're just going to kind of get the ball rolling here in a few minutes with some questions, but is there anything just sort of off the top of your head that comes to mind about pre- and post-op dry eye disease that, you know, listeners need to consider? I think, you know, we'll get into it in the conversation, but uh, certainly the fact that we have a whole podcast on this it just uh, highlights the importance of it, and we'll get into why that is. Uh, and it's an issue that I talk about every day. In fact, just my last patient today had, you know, was someone who was post-op with dry eye, and we got into this conversation. The more we speak with them before, the better prepared we are to speak with them after. Right, right. I think we've all heard that before. You know, it's it's your fault if it happens afterwards. Otherwise, if you're diagnosed <laughs> on the front end, you know, it's really something that the doctor and patient really try to conquer together. Uh, so, exactly. you know, to, to kind of set the foundation uh, in the Tratler's landmark FACO study that was uh, published a few years ago, we found that um, about three-quarters of patients presenting for cataract surgery had ocular surface disease, and at least half have ocular surface problems that alter the results of biometry or could otherwise negatively affect surgical outcomes. So, like you said, there's, there's such an impact to the patient in terms of the numbers and in terms of their uh, ultimate um, outcome with the surgery. So I guess the first question really to kind of get things going is, uh, you know, those numbers are very large. So let's talk about what they mean. What is the impact or what could it have or drive it have on the outcomes of cataract surgery if it went untreated? Well, I think that's a, you know, that study, the FACO study was really a, a great paper in documenting what many of us already know, but actually documenting what we, even worse than we, we thought uh he found up to 78%, and, you know, I think uh, Dr. Gupta had a study that found up to 80% of patients coming in for cataract surgery had some signs and symptoms of uh, dry disease. Now, how does it impact us? I find that it impacts cataract surgeons in three ways, uh, and not the surgeons, but uh, patients, and then their conversation right. with surgeons, and that is that, number one, as you mentioned, if we're getting poor biometry, as keratometry is a key part of our calculations, and keratometry is exquisitely sensitive uh, to dryness, and if we don't pay attention to that, the studies have shown, and, and Alice Epitropoulos had a great study showing as well that with a right. high molarity, uh, that's linked to just having error in our biometry. So that's a very uh, specific, long-lasting, further effect on this patient if they end up you know, with a refractive error that we don't desire. Number two right. uh, is that uh, dry eye signs, that, such as uh, punctate keratopathy and sustaining, also have a negative effect on the visual quality. So if we place an advanced uh, technology lens, such as a presbyopic lens in the patient, and they revert back to their uh, worn-out cornea that's dry, they're going to have poor visual outcome. They won't see far or near and be unsatisfied in that way. So that's a second way, even if we hit biometry, that we can be burned on patients with dry eye. And number three are, and these are sometimes the most challenging, the ones I've seen a lot because we, we carefully screen out dry eyes, but even these are difficult. Those are the patients that 
never felt the head dry. I never felt anything. Their shirt be, comes out well, uh, but they, they, they're visual-wise, vision-wise. However, they have a dry eye, fire body sensation that they think they've never had before, and they're frequently right. And this persists, and this drives them very, you know, it makes them lose confidence in the surgeon because now their eyes dry, and they never had quote-unquote dry before. So right. we want to avert all three of those situations. They're all a little different. Dry is an umbrella term. It's different things. And, you know, the FACO study that Bill Trotler showed that I think – Eight out of ten patients that had dry eyes, they had no dry eye symptoms. This was just something that found on exam. And so we've got a, it's a little different treating dry eye in this population than just our average dry eye patients. So do you think that surgeons still rely heavily on symptoms, or do you think there's a shift towards both signs and symptoms? I mean, are they waiting for patients to say, I have dry eyes before they do and any type of investigation preoperative. I would say that 10 years ago, five years ago, I had all my cataract patients fill out a whole OSDI or speed test. And I want to I unburden my cataract surgery patients. I already have a lot to fill out, so I'd rather not do it. What I found was it wasn't very correlative. You know, patients said they were completely right. fine. They'd come in. They have the worst dry eye. In fact, those are the ones I feared the most because of the biometric <laughs> error and everything else we can have right. on them. And now what I've done is I've created a new survey. We, we, I've taken a few questions on lifestyle, which are like um, lifestyle questionnaire for cataract. I've just taken two dry mm-hmm. questions to put on there. And then I have a few questions from the Dell questionnaire to try to sort out what their visual outcome desires are. So I put that all into a new questionnaire that we have. So six, seven questions, I get just an idea, the glimpse. But really, and your question is very pertinent, is that we look for those signs. And those signs are something right. to pick up on our average workup. We, we can't miss those signs because those signs are the ones that are going to throw us off. Yeah. And so, no, go ahead. And then, you know, that's, and the question of course becomes, you know, what, maybe how do we work up our average uh, cat recreation or, you know, what do we do? Right. And, uh, and there's two schools of thought. Uh, you know, we are, a dry eye center. And by the way, my practice is a primarily a refractive cataract practice in Manhattan, so it's a setting also important. Uh, I primarily see those HESPA patients as well as refractive surgery. And it's really from that over the last 10 years that I've developed the dry eye practice because to be best in class in those two specialties, you have to optimize dry eye in every way. And so we became a dry eye clinic sort of for necessity for surgical patients. And now with other, we have optometrists who, who practice here and other ophthalmologists that practice you know, full-scope dry eye, and they do everything else, and we've grown a dry eye practice as a result of having it for our refractive patients. So it's sort of how we developed it. For those dry eye patients that come in for an evaluation, we do questionnaires, we do the OSDI right up front. But for cataract surgery patients, we don't. We actually abbreviate a little bit. I don't do all the dry eye tests. Maybe in a perfect world, I could do all those tests on everyone, and there are some surgeons yeah. that do. I try to be a little more... Uh, efficient, I guess I should say, because right. just with their time. And so when they come in, they fill out that mini questionnaire. So I do get one or two questions about dry eye. In their history, I know also whether or not they use artificial tears, which is a red flag. And and then we we do our natural screening tests, so we, which include topography. And one of the topographies we use is more of a placebo-based or an LED-based topographer, mm-hmm. so it looks at reflection. That's the most sensitive way in picking up abnormalities. It's, it's our... It's the earliest dry eye test we've had in medicine. It's, it's you know, placebo topography. It shows these irregularities of the cheer film. And, of course, we then see them at the exam and that flip examination that I do. Uh, I see them before any drops are placed in the eye. 
and that's right. when we look for staining, uh, tear breakup time, those classic findings uh, that are really critical for dry eye. Now, if we find those things, then we can pursue other tests, such as um, in-office uh, point-of-care testing. But we don't start right. off the bat with that, and we don't screen all of them off the bat with that at this point. Right. Well, and to that point, sometimes you cast a really wide net on an asymptomatic patient population and you get back a lot of confounding diagnostic data. And it, it's not only inefficient running the test, it's interpreting data that may not be really terribly relevant. So I now, think it's I right. agree I with you so well. Now, I will say something that's anathema to some of the, you know, the, the dry eye world. You know, they want to screen everyone for dry eye, treat everyone, but we have to, you know, we can't. We can't just do a cat scan on everyone and say, and, you know, the studies have shown that we get a lot of false positives and things in any wide screening thing. So we want to be specific. I look at the ones that are symptomatic, especially when they come in for cameras. I think that's a great point. Right, right. So um, so what is your protocol for optimizing the ocular surface before surgery? And how well, would I, you maybe treat a mild dry patient if they came in? I think uh, I would preface by saying, you know, that I see two types of patients I see the ones that have come through our practice and through our other doctors who are referred to me. And those, of course, we have an opportunity. We've diagnosed them with dry eye and cataracts, or maybe they have a decreased vision, and it's because of both those. They're going to get full optimization. We can take our time, and they're going to go through the whole, uh, our whole protocol, how to treat them. And what I want to talk to today, of course, are the patients that are just coming into me for cataract surgery. They may be coming in from one of my co-managing optometrists, from a co-managing ophthalmologist. Right. Or many times it's just coming in from internet research or just word of mouth from another patient. And so they come with different levels of knowledge and, uh, you know, prior diagnoses of dry eye. So I make sure to try to make cover it and find it myself if it exists and discuss it with the patient. So let's say they've come in and we've done our tests. And, uh, you know, normally we dry eyes broken up to mild, moderate, severe. And I think... With cataract surgery, I just put it into two buckets. I, I put it into the bucket of, can I use the information I have today, and do they need to come here on a repeat uh, measurements? Or their eye is dry enough, enough signs and symptoms that I'm going to need them to come back, and I'm going to need to work on their eyes a few times. And so those are the two buckets I have. And, of course, in the second bucket, it could be moderate or severe, if you want to call it that way. And, right. But let's call the mild patient someone that <clears throat> uh, has – Either uh, some mild symptoms of dry eye, they may be using an artificial tear here and there if they have those symptoms and are under control. And when I look at them, the topography is clear and they have minimal to no staining, let's call it no staining or maybe just the tiniest bit. Uh, and more importantly, what I look at is I look at my three different uh, keratometry measurements. I have an auto keratometry, I have my biometer, which measures the, each keratometry measurement, you know, seven times and then does six of those measurements. So I have multiple measurements and a standard deviation and my topography. And if all those are very, very close together with very little standard deviation, that also speaks to that's just a measure of a, a, a nice uniform surface. And if that's what I see on exam, I'm pretty comfortable uh, labeling a mild dry eye and discussing it with them and then proceeding uh, without having to repeat biometry necessarily on those patients. Those patients, I remind them of their diagnosis. Uh, one of the most important things, and I'm not so concerned about their biometry, I don't think so in that case, is I, I discussed them that they have dry eye and cataracts, and doing surgery, whether it's cataract surgery or any type of procedure, is going to flare the eye up a little bit. A lot of inflammatory markers are, you know, released, and we're going to use eye drops to, uh, to put those back in the bottle, so to speak, and want to control the inflammation. But 
in some right. dry eye patients like yourself, Ms. Smith, uh, you're going to actually have a flare-up in your dry eye. It's going to get a little worse before it gets better. You're going to feel more stinging. You're going to feel more irritation of fire body sensation. That's okay. We're going to work with you to minimize that. <clears throat> and on those patients, I what, uh, what percentage? Go ahead. Go ahead. I'll, I'll, actually, go ahead and finish what you're saying, but I'm interested to know what percentage of your, your patients you do repeat biometry on, just anecdotally. That's another thing that I'm a little bit different. If you ask, uh, you know, 50 cataract surgeons, and we've done this, we, uh, I think about half of patients, <clears throat> half of practices, that most of the ones that do general and uh, cataract surgery, they will see a patient, right. just any patient, they get the diagnostic cataract, they always have to come back for biometry. And there's benefits to that because you, can, you have time to optimize even the most dry, the mild dry eye in those cases. But they do that right. for everyone. It's just the workflow they have. Um, right. Because maybe they were seeing this. My workflow is different. My patients are waiting and they're coming here from a lot of optometrists, a lot of things, and some of them are already being treated right. dry. And they want to they just have the surgery. That's really... Right. And maybe it's a Manhattan thing, too, but I'm sure it's universal. We just desire to have this surgery. <laughs> That's part of our dilemma as dry specialists is how much can we put the brakes on some of these patients. We'll get into that in a more severe category. Right. You because know, some people, are, never they're get, never, exactly, they're, they're, you can optimize as much as you they want. They cannot see. They can't do their work. Right. They can't do their emails. They can't right. drive. I mean, are we going to just, how much we force them? Yeah. Can I have a, and we'll get into that a little bit. I'll have a discussion. Yeah. I'm not afraid to. Work on a dry if we have to, and then keep working on it afterwards, of course. Even right. with the biometric and other issues, which I discuss with them up front, and they understand. They say, I don't mind wearing glasses. I just want to see. So those are those right. categories. But I would say maybe 20 to 25% of mine uh, come back, which is a pretty low number. So yeah. uh, I'm not, you know, treating everyone. And there are some practices that everyone gets the whole dry protocol. And, again, I'm a little more efficient with it. I really Because we're so busy and we want to – not over treat. There's nothing wrong with it, but I, I just try to be extremely selective and uh, treat the ones I need to. Well, I think usually things, the truth sort of lies in the middle. You know, if you do nothing, yes, that's, that's not right. a great idea. And if you if you do everything, that's probably not the best idea either, because it can be exhaustive to the patient, can be confusing to a lot of cataract patients. What are you doing? Why are you doing it? And then really the doctor may not garner a lot of additional information. So I think you're spot on to kind of live in the middle. So that first conversation we're really talking, before we even get to the cataract, we talk about this dry eye. And the mild category is a mild category, and we may just reinforce uh, that they may have pain afterwards. That's, for me, one of the most important things, because even those are the patients that, and we think nowadays, that the, you know, the new terminology with the CFAS Jews is this pain spoken is a neuropathic origin. Uh, we stimulate right. something, we set off a cycle in there, and dry eye is part of it. And I want to put that flame out as quickly as possible on those patients, usually with steroids. I'll treat, treat them with steroids. You know, the question may be, well, should we treat them with immunomodulators? They're coming in, they, just have a, they use artificials occasionally, and they have no staining, and their topography is perfect. And I'm going right. to say, if they were free and we had unlimited resources, potentially, but that's not the case. And those patients currently I'm not putting on immunomodulators, the very mild ones, at least not in the beginning. But they do know that mm -hmm. it may flare up and it may need to use other instruments and other medications and tools later. So right. maybe that's just as important. And most of those people have no problem afterwards. So I don't, you know, I've just discussed it with them. And, for, right. you know, I may reinforce. And listen, artificial are great, but I also recommend hot compresses. And I, and I think fish oil may help you as well in the future. That's these are the things. And, and we can discuss other options for you after surgery. Right. So what about your modern beers? Yeah, what about the next level? This is where uh, this is where 
you know, biometry and other and, and visual quality are going to start making a big difference. If someone's coming in in the very, very dry, and my, most of my practice is, is a pre IOL practice and a lot of presbyopic IOLs, if someone has really severe dry eye, I'm already going to discount them from a, I'm really thinking against a presbyopic IOL solution because even if I treat this to the best of my ability and just, and, and we go down the whole pathway, which I will discuss, and they clear up, uh, there's a good chance they're going to drift back to where they came in. That's what the severe cases, and despite being on immunomodulators and having a perfect patient, which no one is, and then they're not going to get the benefit of that lens, which those lenses do have a slight decrease in contrast. There's some contrast loss, right. a little sacrifice, maybe not so much with the latest generation EDOC lenses, but, and you know, a, a dry eye surface has a lot of contrast, the actual snow in lines. So those are patients that I, Actually, talking to a monofocal solution, maybe use monovision or something like that. I can still treat this thing with this. So that's that's just a lens choice. Now, in that moderate severe category, I my main goal after ruling out maybe a presbyopic lens is to optimize the ocular surface. We've heard that many times. And how do we do that most efficiently? Uh, I think that. All of these patients, if they present it this way, need a, a, a rapid onset treatment, and they need some kind of, I call it a disease-modifying treatment going forward, or else they will, they will completely go back to where they are, which I don't want them to do, even with a monofocal. And so the, the, the fastest-acting way of getting their eyes boost up, I find, is to give them a, a topical steroid. So we usually give them a pulse of steroids and artificial tears. But usually that's not, an, and that's just to get something quick to get, the ocular surface refined and see if their vision improves. Some improve to the point of not needing cataract surgery at the time. Uh, and then they need some kind of long-term disease-modifying therapy. What is that? That's usually going to be an anti-inflammatory therapy. And, and there I decide what it is. If they have, uh, we know that mostly dry eye, of course, is a combination of aqueous, uh, of, of uh, evaporative and aqueous deficient, and most have an evaporative component or MGD. I look in, and uh, if, they're, if they have telangiectasias or any signs of oculalization or significant MGD, I'm going to recommend a solution such as IPL to treat and actually eliminate, and this is where we can make a big impact, those blood vessels, telangiectasias, and we know there's some other anti-cytokine uh, effects, anti-cytokine effects that actually have been shown to decrease MMP9 from positive to zero just for doing IPL. So we're doing a disease-modifying treatment, and usually I want to treat them with that. And I'll get as many as I can of those treatments before cataract surgery if we can, if they're on board with it. A lot of those patients may know they have dry eye and never been controlled, so they'll be happy to hear about something we can do. So we will give them the steroid, perhaps, and <clears throat> initiate uh, IPL treatment. Do you, typically uh, do, other, a series, do you typically do a series of, say, four treatments with IPL? Yes. I can okay. four or five. Okay. At what point in the series do you usually say, okay, let's go ahead and do cataract surgery? You, I would assume you don't wait till the fourth or fifth one. That's or correct. That's correct. Okay. So these patients, one of the key things is that, you know, that's why they get the steroids as well. The steroids are going to help and maybe even immunomodulator. But here, if it's mostly telangiectatic, I'm going to go with the IPL version uh, along with um, – Along with the steroid drops, which work pretty quickly in artificial tears, just to just to temporize and follow them back till their cornea smooths out. I'd like to get at least two treatments in, knowing that they've already started. They understand that the benefits of IPL are usually seen after the third, and definitely after the fourth treatment is when patients really feel a difference. And 
by starting it, at least they're going to be on that third one right after cataract surgery. Right, right when dry eye sort of can flare up and they get the fourth one as well. That sort of gets them primed. Now, like I said, for my own patients, if they're coming into my practice, they've already had IPL before cataract surgery. But someone's just coming in, we find that getting in a treatment or two while using the, uh, the steroid drop, they come back for follow-up. I see that there's a regularization of all their, their numbers, and then we can proceed with surgery at some point there. Okay. And notice that those patients, I may not have started a mutomodulator or, uh, or a cyclosporin yet on those specific patients. The other half of the patients who may not have as much MGD or don't have uh, – or uh, not candidates for IPL for other reasons, uh, we're going to start them most likely on either a cyclosporin or lefitograph to, to give them something long-term that will immunomodulate and, and prevent this from bouncing back once we're finished with the surgery. And right. But they because, I mean, this is, obviously there's the concern about the the – you know, initiation of it that this will the surgery itself will trigger the dryness or make an asymptomatic patient symptomatic. There's the concern of the biometry, but then there's the long-term concern about the patient having the progressive and chronic condition of dry eye. And I think a lot of doctors, exactly. I think a lot of doctors, and I've been there because I worked in a surgical practice for 10 years. I think we get very good at siloing the patient as this is a cataract patient. And we don't look at them in totality, and we don't look at them in, in respect to their ocular surface outside of that moment, perhaps, where we're looking at how it affects things. But after they're finished, I don't think we necessarily always are, are aggressive with the chronic nature of the disease. Uh, you couldn't have said it better. Uh, and they're coming in with, you know, at least two diseases at that point, dry eye and cataract. The cataract is a surgical solution. The dry eye is a more chronic solution. We thankfully have these in-office procedures that are disease modifying. You know, they're 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 really not just uh, not just palliative like some of our tears are. So I think right. it's critical to do that because otherwise they'll revert to another visual visually threatening condition, which is what dry eye can be essentially. Besides its symptoms, it can also actually just frankly decrease the, the, their vision. Right. Uh, so we right. always want to do something like that. I think omega three. Uh, you know, despite the recent study, if you know the recent also meta analysis shows that there is benefit to omega three. I was just published right. last month in Cornea. And uh, I do like to place, a, you know, a triglyceride for omega-3 in all these patients. We, we go as far as in some wide-dry patients, we actually confirm with a blood test that they're getting enough of the omega absorbed. And we find that sort of also has anti-inflammatory effects and some disease-modifying effects. So right. that's what we know about. And, you know, and, and one I should add to be complete, uh, some of these IPL patients frequently will then – uh, we'll do a, a thermal pulsation, uh, which right now we're using the Lipiform model. There's a few new versions of that uh, that are now commercially available, handheld versions, et cetera. But we use Lipiflow right. uh, to augment the IPL. And sometimes we, we'll do Lipiflow first and then IPL, and a lot of times we'll do the four IPLs first and then a Lipiflow. And then you know, patients understand that they may need to have more follow-up treatments uh, with those two. Uh, but usually by doing IPL, we uh, can spread out our need for lipoflow significantly because the inflammation comes back less less commonly. If I'm hearing you correctly, and I, I definitely think that I am, it really sounds like you have a, a layered sort of perspective on treatment. It's it's not just any one treatment. You know, you're using the ophthalmic medications, you're using you know cyclosporin, lefitograph, but then thermal pulsation, IPL. 
I think that probably too many practices rely on one thing to carry the burden of dry eye disease for their practice. And when it fails, you know, we think, gosh, well, that didn't live up to my expectation. And I think it's not a one-size-fits-all disease. And I think that approach that you have that sort of layered approach to things is, is really very appropriate. I think the TFOS do too. I mean, it's, it's hundreds of pages long, but, you know, they have a quote in there that the heterogeneity of dry disease is sort of, it's almost part of the definition of the condition. And everyone is so different. And I think in, in 10, 15 years, hopefully sooner, we'll know this is really 17 different diseases. You know, we'll be able to just take a swab and measure 16 cytokines. So until that point, we have to use all our, our efforts and tailor it. I hate to use tailor because that means do we really know what we're doing? We're telling we do. We do. So we have these, I tend to actually treat, uh, I'm more of a proponent of using in-office treatments uh, such as IPL and Lipiflow and even Blefex for certain patients um, early on, uh, especially mm -hmm. because they have a lasting effect. And I may use those before I use the topical uh, anti-inflammatory medicine. On the other hand, some patients come in and, and we may feel that, you know, based on their hyperosmolarity or their RPS or their MMP9, and they're, 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 they have great meibomian secretions, we may just go down the route of, you know, starting the medium modulator right away. But we do tailor it. You know, the key is to identify it, and not just based on patient questionnaire, but also what we see. And, you know, ideally showing it to a patient is also effective. Uh, I think one of the innovations that uh, the lipid view system allows is to actually you know, illustrate on the big white screen here that we have in our lanes to show them what their disease glands look like. I think it's not exactly, I don't think that, you know, ideally I would show them also a topography and this looks irregular, but they can't appreciate that as much. And, you know, if you right. take a slant picture of their porcine staining with staining, actually that's an effective technique also explains them what it look like. Uh, so those tools are good. I also yeah, use the technology I, to explain to patients different things. Right. I agree with you, though. Using mybography, I mean, a picture's worth a thousand words, as we all know. And when you have a, a grading scale, you know, on a laminated sheet or, or printout that they can take with them, and you say, this is you, this is what ideal looks like, you can see yeah. here how you are, fall short of the ideal. I mean, it really resonates. And it sounds like you've probably experienced what I have, which is my patients oftentimes tell me, you just told me something no one has ever told me before. And I think understanding the disease for these patients is half the battle. Yes. I'm, I'm a big proponent of, we're in a digital age right now. We should be able to give patients a digital uh, uh, version of what they're, what's in their eye. And, and that's what I'm do, doing every time. I think even a that yeah. picture, if we get, I have a monitor, I have one room with a beautiful, you know, big screen TV. I'm going to get this in all my future lanes, by the way. But uh, that shows yeah. them what the cataract just shows them, you know, here's what your cataract is. Wow. That, they had no idea, you know, just showing them that right. picture of a normal one right next to it on the, on the screen. So they have a comparison. That's where we're heading. And I think we're starting to get that for drive. Mammography was the first major move to really uh, shine a light on the anatomy here. Right. And right. hopefully, you know, other things we can do will help. You know, dry disease and, and, and I was going to say dry disease and cataracts are so ubiquitous. It's just, you know, we all say it and, you know, talk about it. Patients, I mean, they, they know the terms, but they know so little about what really even a cataract is. You know, they interchange it with glaucoma regularly. So, you know, Absolutely. being able to show show that image, you know, lets the lets the layperson really embrace and understand what you're doing. And it's 
huge, huge for your, you know, really informed consent of knowing what you're doing for them. It's true. When the patients come in and, you know, some of the most grateful patients, of course, the ones that never knew they had dry eye, we diagnose it, we treat them. Uh, they come back in for their follow-up visit. Their vision is so much better. And, uh, boy, they, you know, they, they're just so grateful. Um, right. So I've got just a couple of quick questions as we sort of wrap up. One is, you know, we've talked a lot about the induction of dry eye post-surgical. But, you know, how do you detect and treat the problem uh Pardon me, postoperatively. We talked about identifying preoperatively. What do you do postoperatively to identify in those patients? Is there anything you do differently than you would otherwise do? I would say this. I'm very sensitive to their complaints. So if after a week or so, if they start uh, feeling a really bad foreign sensation, they really come in and they'll call and say, I really feel like an eyelash is in there, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of times they'll come in, we'll stain them. <clears throat> the eye, the eye's quiet, and there's not much stain. So these are not these are patients that have been optimized already. So they're not much stain, but they still feel horrible. And this is where I think is that neuropathic component or something. And when I do mm-hmm. those patients, I am I quickly put them on. I just bump up their steroids. I'm happy to put them on you know two hour steroids for a week or two just to get them comfortable to really try to prevent mm-hmm. a long lasting neuropathic type uh, irregular you know firing of those nerves, and it seems to work. Right. So I give them a pulse much more than I normally would ever <clears throat> after cataract surgery because, you know, steroids in most other parts of surgery, neurosurgery, everywhere else, they give them pulses. They're not given as slow tapers. So I find that works. Uh, as far as the sign, uh, similarly, what I may do is normally I treat postoperatively with a steroid, an NSAID, and the an antibiotic. Right. Mm-hmm. If they have some uh, a punctate keratopathy or some staining, Right. I'm going to, and you, a lot of times they have no complaints. Now, these are the neuropathic, uh, the, the uh, neurotrophic, they don't feel much. They may be another spectrum, but they look terrible. Those are the ones I'm going to quickly uh, discontinue the, the NSAID, which can in those eyes really exacerbate. And even using a modern-day NSAID, you can still get burned, and then you get epithelial, you don't want to call it melting, but you start getting thinning and actually worse uh, dry eyes worse symptoms there. You can actually get a, a delin and worse. So I frequently stop the NSAID, to, you know, to balance between preventing CME, but when they have really dry eyes, stopping the NSAID, increasing the steroid, adding a lubricant, that seems to do the trick, and I frequently resort to that combination, changing my normal course in these patients. Okay. Excellent. So in final question then, what's the ongoing dry eye treatment for these patients? You know, we've talked about the chronic progressive nature of it, you know, and, and how do you, when you sort of start developing a plan, if you're sending that patient back to their referring ophthalmologist, referring optometrist, you know, what do you do, you know, to kind of discuss that plan and, and pass that along to the, the other doctors? And I think this is one of the most critical, uh, one of the most critical foundations of our care is this handoff. Uh, you know, I work with, let's say, a co-managing optometrist. <clears throat> We, the, my relationships, I, we, I try to have a very close relationship with all my co-managing We We text each other, uh, and I know them. I know what the practice is like, and we've talked before about dry eye and, and sort of what our protocols are. And there are a few that are very progressive. They actually have an open flow. When I say progressive, I mean, they've invested, and they, they want to treat this condition, and they have some of these devices. Uh, and in those cases, I would perhaps treat them in one way, and I'll tell the patients that they're going to follow up, and I recommend they have lipid flow. Here's your, you know, Dr. Um, Smith is going to take care of you when you get back. That's the continuation of your therapy. And then I'll communicate that back to Dr. Smith so he knows we've done this much, and we need to continue this much more. And so they'll continue to care. Those are the 
I don't want to call them the easy ones, but those are great with, with the, when the referring doctor and, and we're all aligned and they're, they're eager to try. And then I have other cases where I have some doctors, ophthalmologists, optometrists that really, they don't, you know, dry is not a part of their practice. And they'll, we know that they don't want me to optimize it the best of my can. They're happy if I do the IPL or, or other treatments on them. And then I'll recommend perhaps they have maintenance with either omega-3 or maybe an immunomodulator or whatever it is and they'll follow them for that and will still be a resource as are maybe not myself but my other staff members as a dry practice should that patient need further IPL a year later or something like that. Right. So I think you're you're probably exactly right there. You have to know who's who's on the team. And you know, some doctors want to dive in deep into, you know, lipoflow and IPL and are writing scripts for cyclosporin lipidographs and other ones like you said, just it's just not their area of interest, or perhaps they're a practice that's heavier in some other uh, subspecialty of eye care, and and they leave the leave that all up to you to kind of lead the way and and maybe maybe even retain that patient. But it's really an open dialogue and making sure everyone's on the same page and you're not stepping on toes, which always goes a long way with everyone. I'm certain. Like, and we we try to never retain these patients. We we really want to do their surgery, and but. Sometimes for dry eye, they'll come in just once a year for uh, an IPL touch-up, we call it, and they'll right. manage the rest of the time at their doctor, and that'll be a good combination of just to keep them and everyone's happy. Yep. Well, then everyone's winning if you've got the dry eye patient happy. So, um, That's true. Dr. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Raviv, thank you so much for joining us today for our Dry Eye Coach podcast. We really appreciate your time. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure, and I look forward to learning more, uh, as I always do, from you and your guests. All right. Thanks so much.